Fear is one of the strongest emotions that we often experience. From fear of death, to fear of illnesses, from fears that disable to those that cause chronic anxiety. Fear, as many of us know, really have two effect upon us. It has one effect. It creates adrenaline in us. Uh, and that adrenaline has, as you've I'm sure heard a fight or a flight response. We either flee when we are afraid or we fight when we are afraid. Some love to be afraid. Uh, fear induces a sense of thrill in some. Consider the, the millions who travel uh, all over the world and country to seek some sort of thrill in being afraid, whether those are amusement parks where they uh, fly or, or jumping out of planes, the, the kind of fear that induces and the adrenaline that comes, they, they are hungry for. But for others, fear is not something that they love, but it's something that they deal with on a regular basis. Fear is something that disables them. It causes them to flee from dangers, not run to them. Consider the mother, for example, who, who sees a, their child come under attack. The mother demonstrates tremendous heroism, uh, strength relatively unknown to her because of that adrenaline that's pumping through her. She doesn't flee, but rather she fights. This morning, we come to a text where fear is really at the centerpiece of the text. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, one of the threads that runs through the book of 1 Samuel is this emotion of fear. So if you would, in, in just your own study, read through 1 Samuel and see how often fear is a prominent emotion among the people. How often they are afraid of either their enemies or of the Lord, or as we'll see, of people. As I mentioned, fear runs throughout this story and helps us understand this sort of basic human emotion in response to the Lord and those around us. We encounter, as we have already, those who fear the Lord. Like Hannah, who feared the Lord more than Elkina. She feared the Lord. She trusted the Lord. She had reverence for the Lord. Then we also saw where the people were afraid and feared the Philistines. They, afraid, they were afraid that they would become captives of these much stronger and much more innovative people. And as we'll see next week, We'll see Saul, who fears man more than he fears the Lord. In contrast to another king, who will fear the Lord more than he will fear man. Even the man Saul. And so this morning we come to really that the heart of First Samuel. We come to the, the, the part in which we see this new king beginning to, to kind of Step out, if you will, and, and become a king and, and, and act like a king and be a king. And, and the question of the text really is, what kind of king will Saul be? What kind of king will this, this one who is like the kings of the world around, like the nations around, what will he be like? And more importantly, how will the people follow this king? Before I read the text, I wanted to summarize for you really what the point of the text is. And because we're considering two chapters this morning, very long passage, um, you know, if, if we went chapter by chapter, we would be in 1 Samuel, I think, forever. And so in order to speed up our time through this letter or through this book, um, I've, I've chosen larger sections at times, really, and then, then smaller sections at times to, to think about. But, but really chapters 11 and 12, I think, could be summarized in an exhortation way to us. It comes to us in a way that's a command. It comes to us in a way to exhort us as Christians to turn away from worthless idols which cannot save and to trust with all your heart in the Lord. 
who is faithful to deliver you from sin. In other words, trust the Lord because He is faithful to save. And turn away from the worthless idols that you have in your life. And so we're going to think about this morning how we have idols in our hearts. How we build those idols up. We trust in those idols. And then we're going to consider towards the end of the sermon in the text what it means to trust the Lord. We use that word a lot. We throw it around, you know, I trust Jesus and I have faith and all these things. But what does it mean to trust the Lord? What does it look like? Samuel helps us understand what it means. And so the the purpose of our time this morning is to expose our idols and to cause our hearts to trust in the Lord. And we do this in really two ways. So if you're taking notes, there's really two points to the sermon. Chapter 11 is point one. God is faithful even when we are faithless. God is faithful even when we are faithless. And number two, in chapter 12, we see that God is trustworthy even though we are unworthy. God is trustworthy even though we are unworthy. Let's begin this morning by looking at 1 Samuel in chapter 11 and this truth that God is faithful. That God is faithful. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 11 and verse 1. Follow with me as I read through the text and we're just going to consider a few things about this story and then draw out some implications for our lives together. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Amorite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days to to think about it, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to to, to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. And they came out as one man. When he mustered them as at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. As I said a moment ago, the point of this story, though we see the characters and their interactions and and really the prominent character of the narrative is Saul. But what you see Saul doing is pointing not to himself. Nowhere in this particular text does Saul say, hey, I am amazing. Hey, I am the one who's going to deliver you. Rather, what you see Saul doing in this passage and in this unfolding narrative is pointing to someone greater than him. He points to the Lord as the one who will give victory. 
What we see in this text is that God is faithful to save his people even when they are faithless. Remember the, the, the context. These are faithless times. The people are in unrepentant sin. Yes, sure, they've, they've demonstrated some repentance. But, but as we see in the text, what they have done has just been spit in the face of God and asked for a king like the nations around them. They have asked for Saul to be their king and rejected God as king. And this is what we learned in, in chapters 9 and chapters 10, uh, where they had said, you know, we want we want a king like the nations around us. Lord, we know you've done a good job up to this point, but we really think we would be more secure with a king. But God demonstrates his faithfulness to save his people through this new king. The question that in, in really verses 1 through, through 4 is the question, who will save us from our enemies? A very deplorable situation arises here as we're told this, this Nahash, this Ammonite, just east of the Jordan River, uh, his territory was east there and he was right there. And, and we're told that the people there were, were, were vulnerable to attack from the Ammonites and there's a history behind this particular text. Josephus, the, the, the first century Jewish historian, refers to this particular narrative and, and kind of adds to it a bit. There must have been some oral tradition that this had been going on for some time, particularly the gouging out of the eyes of the Israelites by Nahash the Ammonite. He had a reputation to being a tyrant leader for which the Israelites were subjected to him in this particular territory. Literally, we see in the text that he wanted to shame or disgrace Saul and the Israelites. He wanted to shame them before the world. But God demonstrates that he will deliver his people from their enemies. And God demonstrates his faithfulness by raising up Saul to deliver. In the text in verses 5 through 11, you'll notice how often, as I said, Saul appeals to the Lord, or even how the narrator appeals to the Lord as the one behind the work. In verse 5, we're told that Saul has gone back to his regular uh, farming life. Remember, Saul is a farmer, not a, a king. Uh, he, he wasn't bred as a king. He wasn't raised up by, by kingly you know, parents or anything of that nature. He was a farmer by trade. He took care of livestock. And we're told that he's out there taking care of these oxen when the, when the report comes to him that, that these men of Jabesh are going to be attacked. And notice in verse 6 that it was the Spirit of God that caused Saul to be kindled in his anger. It was the Spirit of God that was working in the life of Saul. And, and as we'll see unfold in the weeks ahead, it was going to be the Spirit of God that, that changes Saul's heart to make it evil and wicked so that he attacks David. It was the Spirit of God here who is at work. And then even in the text, you'll see this word in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. You'll see the words that Saul gave to the messengers was this, Thus tomorrow you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. You shall have salvation. A, a word that is really only used in, in one other context in the, in the Old Testament, and that is the salvation that the Lord gives to the people when He frees them from slavery in Egypt. He redeems them. He purchases them. But throughout the text, we see that, Paul, that Saul is appealing to the work of God to save his people. The truth that we see presented in the text, what we are to understand from this is that God is faithful to save his people from their enemies. This is the point that, that Saul makes clear in verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, just look at verse 13. Notice this. Saul lays out the battle plan. He prepares for uh, this battle. Tells them afterwards that, listen, don't praise me, but praise the Lord. Don't praise me for the salvation, but rejoice that the Lord alone has demonstrated his faithfulness to you to save you. 
to deliver you from their enemies. In verse 12, we are presented with uh, sort of a bookend, if you will, to the end of chapter 10. You'll remember when Saul was anointed as king, uh, there was a few unworthy or, or worthless men who said, hey, how can this farmer save us? Like he may be really great at farming and and uh, apparently he's not so good with the donkeys because he lost a few of them. Uh, so how can he, this farm boy, save us from our enemies? This is what we see in verse 27 of chapter 10. How can this man save us? And, and, and so when Saul demonstrates his ability to save, there are some in, in verse 12, we are told in chapter 11, who say, listen, let's gather those people together, the ones who, who said that Saul can't save us, and let's, let's execute them. Let's kill them. But we see Saul delivers not only the enemies of Israel, but his own enemies. He says, listen, uh, there's not going to be a man today who's going to be put to death, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. What are we to understand from this text? That God is faithful to save. Remember, even in times of faithlessness, God is faithful. And what a refreshing thing it must have been for the people to see their king praising God. Saul gives praise to God for the great work of salvation. Uh, Saul literally started well. He was a good king. He points to the Lord as the, as the ultimate one who will deliver his people. But as you know, Saul's beginning ends in destruction. While he may have started well, he does not finish well. When things perhaps are good in our lives, who do we give the credit to? When God gives us victory, in our lives, who do we give the credit to? When others praise you for the work that you've done, do you point to the grace of God in your life? Do you point to the fact that the abilities that you have to be good in your job or to be good in your home or to be good in your neighborhood Do you point them back to God's grace or do you say, no, I am really awesome. Thank you for praising me. I am a self-made person. Or do you point to the Lord? When, when when, When others make much of you, do you make much of God? This is something that we can emulate from this text this morning to see that that Saul doesn't point to himself as the great savior of the world but he points to the lord so how often in your own lives do you point are you the savior of everyone's world how often do you are you the savior of your family's problems or struggles rather than the lord the question begs us as well this morning who can save who can save us from our enemies Uh, Many, as they meditated on this text, as I was reading through several commentaries and and to sermons on this particular, often pointed to this reality of of who can save us from from our enemy, the devil. There's this sort of spiritual spiritual warfare going on. Who can save us? As Paul cries out in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will save me, Paul cries out. And he he exclaims, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is to say that only the Lord can save. Friends, how are you tempted this morning to doubt the Lord's faithfulness in your life? When you are sick, when you are financially burdened, when your marriage isn't exactly what you thought it would be, when your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren aren't what you desire them to be, or when you are jobless or homeless, how are you tempted to doubt the Lord's faithfulness? Does the Lord cease to be faithful when you are not prosperous? 
Does the Lord cease to be faithful when the enemy is hot against you? Friends, the list could go on with the excuses we make to doubt God's faithfulness. But again and again in the Scriptures, we see this resounding cry, the Lord is faithful. It is His character to be faithful. If God was faithless, if God went against His promises, friends, God would cease to be God. It is intrinsic to His character to be faithful. That is why, as we'll see in a moment, He is to be trusted. Why He is trustworthy. And as His people, we are to praise Him for His faithfulness. You'll see in the text in verse 15 that as the people celebrated that day the Lord's deliverance, what did they do? They rejoiced greatly. They rejoiced not in their king and not in themselves, but in the Lord. They rejoiced in the Lord's faithfulness. Throughout the Psalms, the psalmist cries out to the Lord and to appeals to His faithfulness. In Psalm 25 and verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. You hear, you hear that? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord does not know a path that is not faithfulness. Psalm 33, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. All his work is done in faithfulness. Every decree, every act of our sovereign God is an act of faithfulness. An act of fulfilling a promise that he has made. Or the most known in Lamentations in chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. That's what we sang earlier in that, that great old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And friends, I find Monday mornings, you know, sometimes, if you know, if you've ever talked to pastors, Mondays are typically the worst days for pastors um, as they reflect upon how bad their sermon was the day before, as they reflect on maybe just some member that said something horrible or, or just because they are just a horrible person. Mondays are never good days uh, in the life of pastors. But, but friends, you know, often I am encouraged by Monday. Because Mondays is like the fulfillment of, of, Levit, of uh, Lamentations chapter 3. New mercies are new today. A new day has dawned. A new chance. Lord, may the Lord refresh us that way every day. When we wake up, you made it through the night. I know for many of us, that is a true like that's a true feeling you have every morning. You wake up, the alarm goes off. And you really have the thought that comes in your mind, maybe because of an illness, maybe because of your age, you, you're like, wow, I made it through yet one more night. One more night. I think some of us young, younger folks need to think the same way. To think, you know, I made it. The Lord has shown mercy today to me. The fact that I'm breathing today is, is evidence of the mercy of God. His faithfulness to me. His goodness to me. Friends, the faithfulness of the Lord gives us Jesus. It, it, you have to understand that if God does not keep His promises, then there is no Jesus. And all of the promises in the Old Testament, from every page, and, and you could test this, you could, I think you could do this and, and be successful, turn to any page, in every page in the Old Testament, and you will find a promise that is fulfilled in Christ. A promise that God makes that He fulfills in Jesus. This is what Paul declares in Romans 5, in chapter, chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saves even when we are faithless. Friends, don't think that you have to have your life together 
to be faithful in order for the Lord to be faithful. It would not be mercy, it would not be grace if God saved you because you had your life together. Look, we make a mess of our lives in many ways. We, we, we screw it up all the time. But here is the good news this morning that God is faithful even when we are faithless. By raising up a king to save his people, the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness to his people. By, by giving us Christ Jesus, the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness, his love to us. And though they had repeatedly sinned by choosing to live life their own way, by choosing their own king, God was faithful to his people. And today, God's faithfulness remains. We can trust his promises. And because God is faithful, he truly is trustworthy. We can depend upon the Lord. Well, friends, this is what we see in chapter 12. That God is trustworthy even though we are unworthy. That God is trustworthy. This is what we learn in the story that unfolds as Samuel renews the kingdom, as as Samuel brings the people together and renews the covenant to the Lord. As he gathers them, anoints Saul as king, we see Saul coronated as king and unites the people. What, What Samuel does in chapter 12 is so helpful for us together as God's people. Because he shows us why we must trust the Lord and tells us how we must trust the Lord. Let's look at chapter 12 now. If you have your Bibles, open there to chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray. Behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my, eye, to blind my eyes with? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Well, before we go on, I just wanted to sort of outline a little bit of what's going on here in the text. It's somewhat confusing, these questions that he's asking, but but let me just sort of summarize it in this way. Uh, Samuel here is giving the people three reasons why they should trust the Lord. He's giving them three reasons why, uh, three trials, if you will. He's putting the people on trial, and he's putting evidence. You, You heard the word testify and the word witness, right? Language that is used from the court of law. He set up a, a mock trial, if you will. And the first one on trial is himself. He puts himself on trial and he says, listen, you can trust the Lord because of the Lord's present faithfulness in your life. By raising me up as a, as a faithful priest, as one who hasn't taken a bribe, who hasn't tricked you, who hasn't done anything evil, one who has been faithful, you can look to that and see the Lord's faithfulness in your life. You can see the Lord's present faithfulness. So what he's doing is he's saying, listen, look right now in front of you. Look, look, at, look at me. See how I've, I've treated you in my life. And, and my faithfulness is a, a display of God's present faithfulness in your life. That, that's really a summary of all that we've considered up to this point. God raising up a faithful high priest, one who would lead the people in contrast to wicked Eli and his sons. God has been faithful in raising up Samuel. Samuel is not a wicked. He even compares himself to his sons. says, listen, compare me to my sons. My sons, as we learned a couple weeks ago, are wicked. My sons are evil, just like Eli's sons. But, but I have been faithful. The Lord's present faithfulness. And this is what causes us to remember the present faithfulness in our own lives. 
This is how we look at our, our, our present, the present evidence of God's goodness in our life as a reason why we should endure in trusting the Lord. Well, more than that, we see then the next two uh, reasons why he gives is the Lord's past faithfulness and finally the Lord's power to judge. Well, let's continue in the text. Look at verse 6 with me. As he gives them yet another trial in verse 6 through 15. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Notice the past tense, past faithfulness. He's going to say, listen, I'm going to to remind you of the Lord's faithfulness in your life. I'm going, to remember, I'm going to remind you of all the times the Lord has been faithful in the past. Verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Caesarea, commander of the army of Hazor. And in the hand of the Philistines, and in the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and Asherah. And now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, come against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord. And if you, if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well with you. In the recounting of this narrative, what we see in the text is the Lord's past faithfulness. The Lord demonstrates his, his faithfulness in delivering the, the Israelites from their slavery. Now we hear the recounted stories of, that we see in the book of Judges where God would raise up judges to deliver God's people from their enemies. What Samuel does here is refreshing for us because it reminds us to look to the Lord and his past faithfulness as a means to refresh our trust in the Lord. This is why we read the Bible. We don't read the Bible for mere Bible intake to just learn facts about you know, things that happened thousands of years ago, but rather to see the Lord's character. To read about how again and again he delivered his people even when they were unworthy to be delivered. We see in the text here that they had sinned again and again. That they had gone after idol after idol after idol. Yet God sent deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. Even when they were unworthy to be saved, God saved his people. This is why God can be trusted. Because God is faithful to save. In verses 16 through 19, we see this sort of third trial, the third reason why is that the the Lord's power to judge. He goes on to say, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. What the Lord demonstrates through thunder and rain is is His power to judge. Uh, Rain and thunder in this particular context was not a good thing. 
This was a demonstration of the power of God to judge His people for their wickedness. And they were to trust the Lord because He had the power to judge them. He was, to, he was demonstrating to them their unworthiness of the salvation they had just experienced. They had just been delivered by God's great hand, lest they be tempted to pride, Samuel reminds them that all that God is doing is an act of grace. That God is a gracious God. That He is one who is trustworthy and He is good. You know, oftentimes in our lives, there's times when we have to prove our identity. I find those very frustrating um, and I understand why you have to do that and you have to have all these documents. You know, you got to have mail that has your name and address. You got to have all these IDs and you got to you know, give them blood, you know, to really prove am I who I am and, and so on and so forth. It's frustrating if you've ever experienced that down at the MVA. They require these uh, two proofs of your identity and gives you lists on what you need to prove you are who you say you are. And what we see in this text is the Lord showing us documents documents, if you will, documentation, proving himself, proving who he is, that he is a God worthy of our trust, that we can trust that this is who he is, that when God says he is faithful, he is faithful because he's proven himself to be faithful. Friends, as we think about trusting the Lord, as we think about, okay, God is faithful, he's trustworthy, What does it mean to trust the Lord? What does it mean to trust in the Lord our God? What does this look like? Well, I think verses 20 through 25 really just outlines for us. Samuel lays out for the people what it means to trust the Lord. Verse 20, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. As we conclude this morning, I want to think very briefly on these four ways to trust the Lord. You ask that question, what does it mean to trust the Lord? What does it look like to trust the Lord? Well, first... Trusting the Lord means that your sin no longer defines you. Trusting the Lord means that your sin no longer defines you. Look again at verse 20. Look at what Samuel says to the people. Do not be afraid. Friend, if there was ever an occasion to be afraid, it was this occasion. Samuel had just prayed that thunder and lightning and rain be poured down, and it came down. If that would have happened that day, I would have been afraid. I would have been scared that some lightning bolt was going to strike me dead because I had rebelled against God. But Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Samuel doesn't sugarcoat it. Samuel doesn't say, oh, you know, it's all good. You know, you've sinned. But, you know, deep down, God knows you're a good person. He doesn't say that. He he says, your sin doesn't define who you are in Christ. As a Christian, your sin does not define you. He says, listen, you've done evil. You are wicked. You are sinful. You are rebellious people. But you are God's people. It's your identity in God that defines you Not what you once were. This is what we heard earlier in the Scripture reading. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, it's not what we once were that defines who we are, 
but who we are now in Christ. This is what it means that, friend, this morning, your past sin, your past unfaithfulness to the Lord, however great your sin may be, even today, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, that sin does not define who you are. This is why as Christians, we don't use the term addict. You know, so so the language that like Alcoholic Anonymous uses of of addicts or recovering, we don't use that language as Christians. Why? Because we are not addicts. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are not what we once were. Sin does not define us. What defines us is who we are in Christ. This is what, in verse 20, propels them to trust the Lord. This is what Samuel says, like, hey, listen, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, because God's going to deal with your sin, not by destroying you, but by destroying another. Trusting the Lord means that your sin no longer defines you. Secondly, in verse 21, we see that trusting the Lord means that you believe no idol can save you. To trust the Lord means that you do not believe that idols save you. As we look at the text again, look at what he says. He says, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He says it twice in in one sentence. Empty, empty. They're empty. They're worthless. They have no value. They do not profit you. You You can invest as much time and energy and money and they are a worthless investment. Blowing your money on worthless investments. Buying things which which, which are fleeting and pass away. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we give a trust to to give us happiness and to save us from ourselves and the world around us. And brother and sister, we, we all have them. Part of our sanctification is turning away from idolatry and to trusting the Lord can save. Listen to the language of the text. See the language. It's it's the language of walking, isn't it? Turn. Don't turn aside. Don't don't get distracted. Don't don't like, you know, turn the other way. It's this aspect of walking with the Lord. And, And there's so many idols around us. The big three, power, sex, and money. Those are the sort of big three that that all the others sort of flow from. Control, greed, materialism, pride. All of these manifestations of those big three. And brothers and sisters, we have them. They're in our homes. We, we put them up in our hearts. We, 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 we pray to them. We, we venerate them. We cry out to them to save us from our problems. But what we need to hear this morning is the words of Paul, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As Christians, we want to put to death what is earthly in us. We want to continually be killing the idols of our hearts. This is why we live in community with other Christians. Because we are blind to our idolatry. Oftentimes, we don't see it. See, when you love something so much, you turn a blind eye. You know, your, your children who you think are just angels, they're not angels. Right? I know some of our our older foot, you know, you know that, you know that as they grow older and you see, man, my kids aren't angels at all. But we often, we, we, when we love something, we are blind to its blemishes. And friends, idols are blemishes on our hearts that blind us and cause us to worship the wrong things. And what we need to do as God's people is trust the Lord by believing that idols can't save. Look, more money isn't going to save you. More power is not going to save you. More education is not going to save you. There's nothing in this world that is going to make you happy. Nothing. There ain't nothing in this world. We don't have time to list all the things that we think make us happy. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to be happy. What He wants us to do is to find happiness in Him ultimately through the gifts that He gives us. So in marriage, we want to be happy in marriage. We want to understand that it's a gift of God. 
Uh, we want to be happy in our, in our work, in our success, in our jobs. Surely we want to be successful in our workplaces. Surely we want to you know, be good in our, to our neighbors. All of these things are good, and we should be happy in those. But find ultimate happiness in the Lord, not in the idols. In verse 22, we see a third really meaning to trusting the Lord. Trusting the Lord means that you know the Lord saves for His glory and not your worth. Look at verse 22 and the point that, that, that Samuel makes here. And the reason why the Lord is trustworthy. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Fundamentally, your salvation is grounded in the goodness of God and his glory among the nations. The reason God saves isn't to make a great name for you. God saves to make a great name for himself. The reason God dealt with these people, why God didn't walk away from these people, why He didn't abandon the promise that He had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, why He endured such rebukes and rebelliousness was because He wanted His name to be made great among the nations. He wanted people to be talking around water coolers and in neighborhoods and in churches all across the globe about His faithfulness, not their worthiness. Friend, if you think that God saved you because He needed you on His team that you made some great uh, addition to the football teams in heaven and, you know, the sorts, you are wrong. You are, you've missed the mark. You have totally misunderstood the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God saves for His own glory and His own glory alone. And the very fact that you were saved isn't because of you, but because of God. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, the Lord is going to save you. The Lord's not going to forsake you. He's not going to abandon you. He's trustworthy. Trust in Him. And it's all because of Himself. It's because God cares more about His own name than yours. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, writes this, God's goal in all that He does is to receive praise for the glory of His own name. Whether that's condemnation or salvation, God does all for His own namesake, for His own glory. This is wonderful and freeing. The, the most freeing thing you'll ever know in your life. That whatever happens in your life is for the namesake of God. For God's glory. It means you can't question it. You can't, you just, it's good and great and wondrous. For his own namesake, God saves a people. And we see finally in verses 23 through 25 that trusting in the Lord means you recognize your need for a righteous king. You recognize your need for a righteous king. Moreover, in verse 23, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Friends, trusting the Lord means we trust Him with all of our hearts. And we trust the King who will never fail us. The sad part of this story is that verse 25 becomes a reality in the life of these people. Their king does do wickedly, very wickedly, as we'll see next week. Their king does wickedly, and the people do wickedly. And it's a reminder to us of our need for a righteous king. That what Saul couldn't do, Jesus did. And what you need this morning isn't for you to put your life together and to become more holy. You may think, well, I thought I was supposed to be holy. Yes, you are to be holy. But not to earn God's love, not to earn His salvation, not to be accepted by Him. You are to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind because He has saved you. 
And we see in this text what we are to occupy our time with. For consider, he says, what great things the Lord has done for you. If you need help renewing your trust in the Lord this morning, if you felt like, you know, I've been struggling to trust in God, there's been circumstances, trial in my life right now, and it's been hard to trust the Lord, Samuel helps you in verse 24. He says, why don't you spend this Lord's Day, this afternoon, not filling your mind with junk, but filling your mind with the great things the Lord has done for you. Consider over your lifetime the great things the Lord has done. The the times when you have been faithless. The times when you have been unworthy. And all of those times He has rescued you out of the miry bog. All of those times that you have gone astray. All of those times where, where you've been prayerless, where you have been faithless. And all of those times, not because you got your life together, but because the Lord met you and saved you. Because the Lord did great for you. This is how you keep enduring. This is how you keep trusting. Can God really be trusted? It's the question you have to answer for yourself. A question that Scripture alone answers in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Listen here as we conclude with Revelation chapter 21. And he who is seated on the throne said, this is the Lord, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. That's a promise that Jesus gives. It's a promise that you can know is true and trustworthy. Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And because of that, Jesus can be trusted. And this is the promise that we await for, that we sang about earlier, that we long to see. A promise we'll celebrate here in just a moment in the Lord's Supper. A promise we long to be fulfilled, that we will be with God for all of eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give glory to you through Christ our Lord. We pray that we would see you as a God who is faithful and therefore trustworthy. Pray that we would depend upon you in all that we do. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.